We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello and welcome to the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast and it's me again, your host Tim Stillman on this occasion. Elliot is sitting in a bar somewhere uh, having a brandy. No, I, I don't know what he's doing to be fair. I think he might be working or something. Um, you know, we, we don't, we don't, we, we're not really a touchy-feely group, uh, ask each other questions. Something really bad might have happened actually. Um, I don't think it has. But that's why I'm in the presenting chair on this occasion and those of you that are patrons will know that I presented the pod the other night as well. Um, we're going to have a little bit of a talk about when I appreciate not all of our listeners are patrons and so um, we did do a Patreon pod on transfer deadline day and we kind of really got into the nuts and bolts of Sambi Lokonga, Jorginho, um, overall transfer business and all of that. So we're, we're not going to rehash that discussion, not least because that was a whole 48 hours ago anyway, and I think some of that conversation has probably moved on a bit, but we'll pick some of it up in here. We'll have a little bit of Edu chat, a little bit of a look ahead to Everton. We might talk a little bit more about the Moises Caicedo deal and hurting Brighton's feelings um, and all of that. Um, but And with me to do that is Clive, who you can and should follow on Twitter at Clive. PAFC. Hello, Clive. Hello, hello. And Paul, who you can and mm, take under advisement following on Twitter at Poznan in my pants. Hello, Paul. Woohoo! I sense a little edge there, Tim. Is that because of that <laughs> comment I got in my DMs? I'm going to read this out for people. It's, it's a classic. <laughs> oh, I, I thought you might. <laughs> go on, go for it. Hang on, where's my. Uh, yeah, it's a good one. It's uh, So this guy. It was about a year ago. I didn't really notice his message, and then I suddenly spotted it, and I'm like, this is just too good, too, too good. So here we go. Where are you? Was it from at Poznan, Poznan in my pants on Twitter? Was that who sent it? It was not. So <laughs> I shared this in our WhatsApp today. I said, some guy DM'd me a while back, and he says, I'm new to Twitter. I just messaged Clive. I'm not as fond, keen on you, pimp. You always seem half-cut. <laughs> but maybe that's just your Arsenal coping mechanism. I love the podcast, though. Heart uh, P 
peace symbol heart. And then a few minutes later, he comes back to me and says, forgive me. You're my favorite, actually. It's Tim I'm not amazingly fond of. <laughs> so these are the high-quality followers and messages I get. So there's a little little tension, a little coldness in the air between me and Tim as he's exposed for being half-cut well, and not this fellow's most favorite. Well, look, if if he thinks that I'm drunk most of the time, that just proves he's a patron because... <laughs> I, I, reserve, I reserve my drunken appearances on the pod for the Patreon pod. That's that's a little bit of a that that should. I, I hope that's a little hook for those of you who aren't patrons yet to sign up. That's that's what I do. I get Drunken drunk before Tim. I go. Yeah, I get drunk Patreon. before I go on those, and I'm like I'm like Father Jack, um, sitting in the armchair, kind of just swearing and cussing everyone out. Um, and let's do a bit of that in this podcast. Why not? So. The first thing I want to start with, and I'll start with you, Clive, I think, is Edu. I, I think this is quite an interesting discussion to have because on transfer deadline day, Edu out was trending on Twitter. Now, I know tr- Twitter trends are, you know, they're kind of, obviously, I'll see that tr- trending on Twitter because of the ty- type of things I tweet about and blah, 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 and London, etc., etc. Nevertheless, that did seem to be quite a felt sentiment, and it did make me think of what Arsenal fans actually think of Edu at this stage. Now, personally, I think it's all a little bit overwrought and I think like there's just too much we don't know about like technical directors and that. But, you know, we do have to acknowledge that maybe we missed we missed our two biggest targets in January. Um, and how far is that down to him? How far is that just a reality of budget? I don't know. But there have been missed signings. Um, over the last few windows as well. But at the same time, we're top of the league, five points clear, largely because of good recruitment, I think. What, what's your what's your kind of thousand-foot view, um, having him now having been here for nearly four years of, of Edu Gaspar as the technical director? Yeah, I, I missed the, the Twitter. I didn't really see that or feel that. So um, good. So yeah, <clears throat> been quite busy at work this week, so I missed that. So I'll just go with what I know, right? So and, and what I feel, and, and actually what I've seen in my own eyes in this case, because um, I did get a chance to see him and have a brief, brief handshake, and I thought to myself, you know what? This is interesting because Tim, when he first landed on our shores, you knew more about him than we did. You were telling us all about what he's done before, what he did working in Brazil with the Brazilian team, the type of the role that he had. And so we had a bit of an upfront look at him into his background. And he's obviously got, he's learned some corporate behaviors and just the way he stripped clean the club, really got people to focus on their roles, made more accountable, and really got less people doing more. And that was a bit of a bit of a strange one for us when we were sitting eighth. And we were more worried about the results. We were more worried about and why had it taken two kids coming to the team to to resurrect us? And why we lose to Burnley at home? You know that's where we were when he was cleaning the club out, right? And and some of those steps were unexciting and very brave, right? And and not many people were doing it, paying people to go. You know why you do that? You know it's wasted money, <clears throat> but there was a plan in place, and we can all sort of see the plan now. I think it's quite interesting that. I remember when Arteta got made manager. Remember that one? We and we discussed it many times in the podcast. And some people say, "What are we doing that for? You shouldn't be making him manager." But then when you look back now, you think, right, you can see why they did it. The way he operated, he didn't operate like a head coach. He operated like a manager of a football club, top to bottom. 
aligning everybody to to work in one direction. Of course, now we can see that. No one ever remembers that job change. What's Edu had just now? Just had a job change. He's now as our technical director, his formal job title change. And the reason why they've done that is because there are many, many people trying to take him from the club. And that's because he has garnered <clears throat> a really strong reputation. And I have to say, he's a, he looks an impressive dude. He looks a serious dude. And so I look at him and say, well, what you've done to strip this club down, to bring it back, and being part of that executive team, and do some very unexciting, brave things that are only going to make you look bad to get us to this point, I think, you know what, fair play to not just him, but others that are involved with him. And then you get to the point where how do we, the, the common fan, measure him? Well, we measure him based on rumours around a certain player that we may or may not like, the price around that player. If we succeed to buy that player, then if we buy another player, is that player as good as the player that we really liked, that we didn't know much about until the rumours hit, but we fell in love with because we really wanted him in the team. When another player comes in, we weren't sure about him. We don't like the price we pay for him. I just think the measurements of success are massively personal to that individual and massively inconsistent. And so me, with my head... I, I just look at it slightly differently and have a bigger picture around it. I look at the state of the club today compared to where it was five years ago. And I would just say, well, you know what? All of the key measures, whether they be on paper and on grass, and then you add in the soft factor measures, are going in the right direction. And so why would we say get rid of our first technical director? because we missed out on a signing, whereas you guys know, and many of the listeners know, that whole world is a complete lottery. You know, it's a complete lottery, and things can change in an email, and um, it's very difficult to circumnavigate. So I'd I rather look at the longer-term trends, and longer-term trends are all positive, and he's part of that group, and, um, and that's why I'm in it, Tim. Yeah, I, I think part of that group, I think that's that's... Because we identify individuals, right? And like we don't even know enough about Edu's role, but I think there's an assumption that he's the fixer. He goes out and does the deals, when in reality, he's not the only one. Tim Lewis is involved in those deals. Richard Garlick is involved. Josh will be involved at, a, at an oversight level. Like It's like that's an executive team. It's not just exactly. that Arteta says, Edu, that's give what, me player, yeah. and he exactly. just wanders off careful. and negotiates. I was careful yeah, to use yeah, that yeah. language, you know, for the exact reasons here. Was we, and his new role, I think, it incorporates the academy. Is that right? Um, and um, yeah. and I'm not sure. You tell me, mate. Does it involve have some sort of women's team involvement as well? I'm not sure. It, that's more Richard Garlic um, who right, does okay. that. But I think Richard Garlic kind of reports into Edu. So right. um, I I know he's had some involvement in Arsenal. Women have signed two Brazilian players in the last year, and I know. He's had some involvement in those two. I think in terms of first contact, um, yeah. which makes sense because he'll know them because they both have played for Brazil. So, you know, he probably just knew them and it was an introductory thing. But yeah, yeah he, he's. I, he, I think tangentially involved. Involved. It's, it's Richard Garlic who's who's really involved there. Cool. Yeah. Now, when when, he, when you first introduced him to us, because you did, um, I was concerned he wouldn't have any idea about the European market, to be honest. But that was my one gut feeling. But if you look at some of our recruits and how we've recruited from within the Premier League, I think that course of direction has really made a difference. 
It's really made a difference mm. to the team and how we perceive within the league. And if he's been behind that, again, it's a group. I can only say it's a positive thing, right? That's my opinion anyway. Yeah, and like, you know, as much as Arsenal didn't get their main targets, they, in both scenarios, pivoted and pivoted quickly um, to get deals done, which, which, which I do think is to the credit of the team that's that's working on those deals. And like, I don't think they just pulled Jorginho's name out of the air on January the 30th. I'm pretty sure that when they sat down in December or November or whatever, they were probably thinking, this is who we want, but if we can't or don't, then you know we'll press the Jorginho button if we need to because we can we think we can do that deal. Paul, I don't want to cut you out of this discussion. Well, I do, but um, I'm not going to because that would be unfair. Uh, <laughs> um, <Yeah>. do. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm going to shun you now. Now you've had that one DM. That's it. That's it's it's over. This is Paul McCartney, 1969. Um, Edu, Paul, what are you yeah. thinking? Like it's um, like. Three words. <laughs> like, like. Like, okay, excellent. We'll do the thumbs up like it's Facebook or something. No, pl- please yeah. do expand. I uh, I think you guys are right that we don't, we, and um, by that we mean the idiots on Twitter who lose their minds, uh, don't really understand his position. And we who don't lose our minds at least admit we don't fully understand what he does, how it all works. We have much more of an idea what Arteta does, and yet they're kind of like a midfield pairing. They're like Party and Xhaka, and the roles have adjusted over time. Uh, Arteta being Partey, he's like, he's the star, so you let him have the dance floor. And he came in as a coach, but we can all see now, I did say it back in the day, he came back. He came in with the blueprint under his arm, right? It's, it's pretty obvious. There's no great insight there from me. He, he, it is clear from all the reporting that Artis, Arteta spent the three or so years before coming to Arsenal working out everything he thought was wrong and everything that needed fixing. And that was not just about players and, and training techniques and stuff. That was a club top to bottom, front to back, back office, front office. And Edu and he have found the appropriate accommodation between the two of them. Edu is a very, very personable guy by all accounts. Uh, he, he carries that barbecue you see at the weekends at his place. You may make the mistake of thinking that's at his He actually literally carries that around from building to building, <laughs> office to office, spiritually. But that's who he is. He's, he's a... Um, a, a uh, an affable guy. He knows names. He knows the people. He knows the Rolodex. Uh, he presses the flesh. I am curious, Clive. Uh, what was his handshake like? Was it one of those damp squib? Was it the wet strong. fish? That he's just a hell of a strong. He's very tall, and he yeah. his his body fat levels are much Go less on. than my own. <laughs> he, <he's, laughs> he says he's in the gym at six a.m. every day. Yeah, like he's. Yeah. I know he was a professional athlete, right? But like he's one of those. You ever watch like or read or listen to interviews with like CEOs who are like, I sleep from 1am to 2.30am, I'm in the gym at 3am and then I go for a run at 5am and I go to I do court, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> I think he's like one of those guys. Now he's one of those guys. Uh, I imagine he's very impressive to stand in front of Clive. Good definition. Good aura. Good aura. Yes, it was yes, but I had a good red wine in my hands. I can't really remember. (laughs) um, You had your own good aura, Um, but 
like you need guys who can compliment. And I don't think Edu had to come up with the whole vision himself. And like, if he did, it was unlikely to be exactly the same vision as Arteta. But Edu was pretty strong on wanting uh, Arteta to join the club in promoting him within the club. Edu was terrible when he had a dysfunctional club around him in the Raul days. And he's been very, very good as the club became aligned. You talked about Tim Lewis, Josh. I mean, there's, uh, I think I, maybe Tim Lewis doesn't make the cut on this, but at one stage I called them the football bros. You'd see Edu and Arteta and Josh and they're kind of chatting and there's a bit of a joke between them. And you could just totally imagine them getting on the same page and working out where we're going. That's the important thing with Ed, Edu, that he works out what is needed between the different... Now, we think of him in terms of deals, etc., but uh, he had at least the vision to lead our pivot away from our old scouting system, which I, we were all very, very nervous was about. I certainly was, that we dumped them all. Uh, we brought in video and data, and then we kind of... Re- I assume we've resurrected some form of scouting network. We kept the net- scouting ne- network in South America, which made it sense because the data... And video and coverage isn't as good, certainly not from our perspective. And so many of the talents are coming from there. So looking back on that, that seems like a wise perspective. And then, you know, the short version of the this window, I would have been gutted if we hadn't come back from uh, this window with a couple of top tr- transfers to help our push towards a title, even if they weren't the names that excited us, even if they're... It's kind of impressive that what we got, or it's terrible, uh, is the total opposite of what we started out the window looking for. I mean, Caicedo versus Jorginho, you can't think of anything more opposite, maybe. And yet, uh, I don't feel, I feel we might be better prepared for, and I'm not the first person to say this either. There's a lot of people who think, yeah, this might actually work better for the title challenge. Mm-hmm. Uh, and talking about, the template for what Arteta has been looking for for a few years. He got party to fulfill specifically what he called the Jorginho role. At City, they got um, Rodri to fulfill the Jorginho role. And who did they want before Rodri? Jorginho. Yeah. <laughs> and they lost out to him to Chelsea. Hmm. And, like, who's the pain in the ass in this window? Chelsea. And so... <laughs> There is some delicious ironies. And, like, it's not Chelsea wanted to get rid of Jorginho. It's Todd Bowley wanted something newer, flashier, or whatever. Jorginho was still, at some level, doing the business for them. Um, And, like, his game isn't built on speed. We may have to make some adaptations to him. But, like, it just makes sense. And can I ask you guys a quick question? Do you really think we were going to buy Caicedo and Rice? I know we said we would. I know that was the message that the club were happy to leave out there. But do you? I'm not saying could it work or could a club do it or could one. But like, I don't think if they bought Caicedo that they're also going to buy Rice in the summer. I just. I think. I think. I think it would make it less likely, maybe. But the thing is, like, in terms of it would make sense for the squad because really what we're looking for long term is we'll need a Xhaka replacement and we'll need a party replacement at some point and actually both of those players probably kind of come into that um but I, i'm kind of with you i think it would make it less likely perhaps just because we'd have, like if we go to west ham with like 70 million and they say no it's 80 like 
if you've spent 75 million on Moises Caicedo, perhaps you haven't got that other that extra 10 million. So I think it makes it. I, I think the intention would still have been there. I, I do believe that, but yeah, at the same time, I, I do think perhaps it would have given us less wiggle room. What do you reckon, Clive? I think it's, it's a it's a deep topic, me. I'm I'm reading about it. I'm trying to learn about this because things are changing in the world of football. What Barcelona did mortgaging their future, right? So, you know, creating these levers, mortgaging their future against a TV deal. Quite shocking, really, you know, for a club that size to be where they are. What's happened at Juventus is quite shocking, right? So, they look what's happening with Chelsea, the way they've circumnavigated FFFP. It's quite shocking what they're doing. The money that they're spending is sticking out massively. So, I started to look around a little bit today to see, well, where's this money coming from? How are the clubs are projecting forward? The TV deal was re was uh, reinstated during COVID on the same number, the local TV deal. But the the international TV deal has gone up by just over a billion. And that's going to keep going because the Premier League is kicking everyone's backsides. And so teams are really mortgaging their futures. And they really are looking forward and saying, you know what, we're going to do it now. We're going to do it now while the, while the sun is shining. And so the way we look at our clubs, the way we judge them, we can only judge them based on history. But I'm starting to project forward and thinking, what's happening? What's changing in the game? What's likely to change? You know? And it's about positioning yourself for that change in the game. It's up in it, mate. Football could look so different, you know, in, in three years' time. It could look different. The Champions could expand. You know, World Cup's going to expand. There's going to be more to. pressure yeah. on players. Squad differences are going to really change. I still feel we haven't quite grasped the impact of five substitutes, what that means for the quality of player we're going to have on the bench and what we really need to buy. I think we need to... I'm evolving my thinking. I'm trying to bring people with me as I get there. I'm not there yet, but I can... We are... We are. This game is developing in front of our eyes. We can literally see... I spoke about players sharing games, but we could literally see them sharing games. Do you see what I mean? Literally 50-50 in a game to get maximum power and speed. That's how you can evolve the game, evolve the bench. We can change half your team. Why wouldn't you think about things like this? So when we're talking about Caicedo or Rice, why not both? Do you see what I mean? Why not both? If, if you can project financials and you have that power on your bench to manage a massive season a 65 game season which could easily happen and international tournaments and they get two weeks off why not both why not protect your future that way and I just feel I'm we're, we're gonna have to catch up to where the, the game is going financially and where it's going on the pitch from a from a uh, substitutes point of view and how you apply resources and we, we had a bit of a giggle about Chelsea a few weeks ago, and I, and I didn't giggle. So let's try to find out what they're doing first. You know, I didn't giggle. Let's find out what the plan is, what they're doing. And look what they've got, 35 players in their first team squad. That's gonna that's not optimal, right? They're taking heavy risks. They're mortgaging their future. They're mortgaging it on the fact that people are us going to come along and overpay for their players they don't want to play in their team. It's The game is changing. I'm not sure where it's going, but I do know I'm throwing away some of my historic structures by which I judge the game. You know, I think we, I think maybe we're going to have to. Yeah, yeah, uh, Paul. Yeah, and just to come back on that, like uh, I fully agree with that, Clive. I would love to have Caicedo and Rice in our team, and we could absolutely use them. I just like 
maybe I'm just updating my perspective of, of where we're at as a club. Like if Todd Bowley were in charge of it, yeah, we would. In fact, not only could we, we would have both those players in the summer. I don't know that I think Arsenal is really was really planning to have Caicedo and Rice. I think I don't think they're with you quite with the you and Todd at this point, Clive. I'm joking there. Do you, um, do you see what I mean? Do I you see what I mean, though, Paul? For me, the oh, names yeah. are almost yeah. immaterial because they change in the flick of a switch. You know, I like different sure, names sure. every month, as my followers will tell you. <laughs> and so, um, yeah. and so, basically, but it's it's the concept of having that level of quality at one time in your group. I think we may need to adjust our thinking to the prices will change potentially. And, and there's rights yeah, as a contractual opportunity. Because we're, we're hung up. Well, one can get hung up on Kaiseido in the summer. It can be somebody else. We can get rice and somebody like, I just think uh, exciting transfers, blah, blah, blah. I'll tell you what's really exciting winning the premier league. And if Jorginho helps us get there, because actually he's a really good foot fit for the next six months or the next 18 months of our project. Like, I've always loved Trossard as a player. I think, like, those two players come in, help us immediately, make us better, give us depth. Trossard's pushing to be a starter. Jorginho is a backup in name, but who knows how much he may play, qu- possibly quite a lot. And, like, talk about a player Arteta trusts and know how to, knows how to use and knows what we're doing here. Like... That'll do for my definition of excitement. If two players help us get over the line here, um, like I don't really care whether it was – I wasn't excited worrying about Caicedo in November. Like you say, Clive, mm. the names can be different in in June. There are other players out there. We may end up with a Rice and a Caicedo. And like, I'm going to give – the only thing I'd criticize Edu on is the fact that we didn't stealthily get these deals done, that – they were all over the radar, that they were loud, they were noisy. Uh, the Caicedo one, you kind of understand, because it was, uh, we got into uh, injury trouble and we had to respond. And like the guy we wanted was a guy a club didn't want to sell. The Mudrick one, surely there was a way to keep that guy off the internet and to stop people talking about it. But maybe Shakhtar, that wasn't, the problem with that is, once again, Shakhtar Donetsk did not want a quiet deal, they wanted a noisy deal to the point that Mudrick needed to kick up a fuss to make sure that he got sold. So, like, the main criticism I would have of Edu was he couldn't keep these under the radar. I don't think these two deals were capable, underable, the radarable. Clive? Yeah, it's very hard, right, to... When we're talking about Arteta, we can can sit here as three guys watching the game. We can say, you should have made this change, you should have done this, because we're expert hindsight coaches, right? And we can judge what's on grass... And some of the things we're judging in the mahogany boardrooms are just things that we read that we don't know if they're true. Because I look at the Madrid deal, and I, I personally think that should have been done last summer. How could you let it? You should have done it last summer when numbers were a lot less. You know, he nearly went to Germany for like 35 minutes, I think it was. And if you like this player, which I'm sure you did know about him, could he have brought it forward? And we got distracted, potentially, based on what I read, potentially. We got distracted with the centre midfield injury issues and we pivoted, end up doing nothing. You know, so 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 I can say, Oh, you should have got it last summer, we'd be fine now. And if Mudrick sticks one our top caller, that will get really loud. You know, that will get really loud. But I don't really know what was happening. It's a very hard to judge. 
and somebody based on rumour, conjecture, and what you read in various newspapers. So, whereas Arteta now, we can really have a good go at it because we watch the football every single week. Yeah, yeah. I, I think, um, you know, to, to kind of wrap what was the Edu discussion up, and I'm gonna we're, we're going to stay on Caicedo because I think um, we haven't really talked that that deal or no deal kind of through but one of the best football articles i read in the last few years that i i cite constantly is rory smith when he was at espn wrote something about um football gurus and it was it, it was in the aftermath of leicester winning the league and he was talking about how like everyone's getting fixated now on directors of football and at that time monchi was coming up and like Leicester had just won the league, so it was all about Steve Walsh and what Leicester were doing. And so what teams started doing was just lifting these guys. Steve Walsh went to Everton. Well, <laughs> you, we all know what's been happening at Everton the last few years. Uh, yeah, Clive in the chat, Ranick. You know, we got obsessed with these like fixers, and uh, and then Monchi went from Sevilla to Roma. Didn't work, and I and I think all of this. Recently to Spurs. Yeah, 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 yeah. And all of this, like what it exposed when you took these guys out of those environments and put them in other environments, it didn't work. Um, and it's because I think it's such like a team thing. It's not about taking one guy and like this guy will fix all of our problems. We had it with Mislintat as well. We did we did the same thing with Mislintat, albeit there was something different there and perhaps we didn't really go over to his yeah. vision, et cetera, et cetera. And I know but, where you're going with this, but there's the same thing with Brighton, but also not just the director of football. Let's get their data department or let's get yeah. their this. Or that, like Brentford? I think I like, see Brent, where you're to, going with this. To be fair, Brentford's staff is all over the place and we've got some of it. We've got, we, you know, Nicholas Jova, the set-piece set piece coach, um, and, you know, they, they've done brilliant things with data, as have Micheland and all of that. So... You know, but there there is this like fixation with the guy who will do it when actually it's like it's a lot of guys, it's a lot of like cogs in a machine. And but, can I also say it's not even like you think you could lift the the department, but it's not even that, right? It's it is culture, it's alignment, it's layers, it's interdepartmental. It's not like grab the three data guys, the video guy, and the director of football and bring them across to Chelsea or wherever, they're still going to kind of sort of suck because they're going into whatever club they're going into. Do you think Todd Bowley and Graham Potter are aligned? <laughs> I mean, no. you know, yeah, yeah, indeed. Yeah. And and so on that subject, I do want to talk a little bit about the Caicedo deal and, you know, it not happening. And um, look, I think a lot of Arsenal fans have gotten stuck into Andy Naylor from The Athletic, who I've followed for a long time and is obviously a really good journalist um, and has covered Brighton for many, you know, nearly 40 years. I think he's been covering Brighton and I think he got some Arsenal fans' backs up. And, and I kind of get why, um, to be honest. Some of it was a bit overwrought and was just spoiled Arsenal fans on the internet just being like, we want your player, go away. <clears throat> but actually... <coughs> Sorry, excuse me, putting on that voice. Give me a frog in the throat. But It pretty but, much came out the same as your normal voice, so I don't really. <laughs> but so, so Clive, if I come to you on this first, like where do you stand on the, because one of the things Andy wrote about afterwards in The Athletic was that 
this has potentially harmed the relationship between Brighton and Arsenal that when Chelsea bid for Caicedo they were told go away and even they went away and we didn't go away like um you know what, what honestly what do you I mean do you think honestly there will be any like damage in the relationship that will stop any deals happening in the future but do do you think that maybe if Arsenal reflected there they'd say maybe we should have just gone away uh, I don't know um, I, I honestly I, I have little care about this um, Brighton are feeling themselves at the moment good side but um, hey look Liverpool were feeling themselves a little while ago made a few wrong moves in the transfer market and now they're way down the league and having to rebuild and um, they spent some money on certain players in the forward areas. They got to develop them. They're not ready to play, you know. And they gave someone three hundred grand a week. They didn't really need it. And the player they really miss is in playing for Bayern Munich. You make a few mistakes, and the rest of the league just chop your head off very, very quickly, and and take you when you're vulnerable. As it happened to us in the past, people took our players, and we were financially in trouble. Man City took our players. Man United took our players. We just had to take it. And now we're a little bit stronger right now. No one's trying to help us. And that's part of the game, right? It's, it's dog, dog eat dog. It's dog eat dog. No one wants to help each other. They want to position themselves accordingly. So Brighton have got some very good data models in the background that allows them to get a few things right. But that was Southampton once, not so long ago. Leicester. Southampton, Leicester. And we had many times on this podcast, we, were t- we used to talk about Leicester and Liverpool a lot. You know, and how we wanted to be a lot like them. Well, how far ahead are we of them now? And we go back to the guy. We go back to the guy that started the podcast. We're discussing. He, he's part of that story, right? And um, so that's how I judge. That's how I judge. We're not talking about little play anymore. We're sort of giggling quietly, and they're that their hundred and six year old midfield. We're, we're we're giggling, right? And they. Because COVID hurt them, they couldn't sell and regenerate like they wanted to at a time. Had to hold people a bit longer, and now they're going to have to do a complete rebuild and get it right. You know, so Brighton are flying. Got some great players there. McAllister, Mitoma look fantastic. They got good core strength for the back in Webster and Dunk. Good, decent goalkeeper. But a couple of wrong moves, got those players go. Let's see what happens. People won't wait. They'll just take them. So they're feeling themselves at the moment. Yeah, don't worry. Let's see, those players have seen... The the other interesting thing and the point people have made is when we go into the market to try and shop in the places, everybody says, oh, it's Arsenal. All right, it's no longer 10 million, it's 30 million. Well, Brighton are about to start having that problem too. I mean, I think they got Matoma for what, two and a half, three, five million. You you think the club wishes they'd charge Brighton a little bit more? If Arsenal had showed up, it wouldn't have been two and a half million. No. Brighton is now... And the next time they put down a 2.5 million bid for a player, (laughs) maybe they'll be like, well, if Brighton won him. It's embarrassing. It's it's a career-ending deal you do at that point. Um, (laughs) So, like, there are reasons why your world changes. Um, They're also going to have various challenges with their 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 squad jockeying to be the next one at the door or like this turnover and then the disparities in terms of how they're treated kai sado how will he be treated to the so i mean you can see why you can have a two or three year golden period but it doesn't last forever yeah it doesn't and um i think brian bars maybe we'd love to have their ability to spot players but 
Ours feels fairly stable and sustainable at this time. I think we're in a really good place building together players on long-term contracts. We're getting smart in our recruitment. Uh, we don't have any major headaches contract-wise in terms of players we need to let go. And then you look at City and all of their challenges. I know this wasn't exactly where you were going, Tim. But mm. like when you look at the, the squad stories at, at City and where those contracts are, are at and how many players would like to leave, the reporting on that, and how many players... And Pep talking about how squads need that... Refri- like, it could be very, very good news for us overall over the next... Not just six months, which is what we care about now, or five months. I mean, they've got a hell of a lot of work to do next year, even if they turn things over in their squad in the summer. Um, I think we'd, we have to see ourselves challenging for the title this year and next year and just building on it. We're like the des- – as Clive has talked about, that we're the destination of choice. Arteta, for many, will be the manager of choice. Yeah, I, I think um, – but before I come to you, Clive, just to put some more like context around Caicedo as well from what I know from my time covering South American football, like Caicedo was not a secret. This is not someone that – Brighton unearthed out of nowhere. Everyone wanted this kid, right? He was at a club called Independiente del Valle, who are like the Brighton <laughs> of Ecuador. They went from uh, the third tier to the Libertadores final in seven years. They're a massive, like they went on a massive, massive kind of um, slope of success. So they've become like a club that people look at and go, oh, wow, their talent ID is good. And obviously like talent ID, like, Obviously, Brighton can do things that the big six can't. I mean, we can still, but we still got Gabriel Martinelli for three million from the Brazilian fourth tier, right? Like we we can do it. But Caicedo, like he he wasn't a secret, and it was a massive surprise to everyone when he went to Brighton because everyone thought he was going to go Barcelona and go out on loan or Real Madrid and go out on loan. But he went to Brighton, and it's a smart choice. And everyone knows why he went to Brighton. It's like I'll play. And then I'll get sold. <laughs> that's that, you know, that's 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 the kind of model. And then like it, it's delicate for Brighton as well, because I don't want to sit here and say, Oh, you didn't sell us your player, Brighton, you better be careful. Like they, they can do what they want. And to be honest, with the way he and his advisors handled it, I think that made the move less likely. And if I were a Brighton fan, I'd be quite pleased about that. But at the same time, it's a delicate balance, right? Because if you buy players and you get players on the basis that when the big club comes knocking, you can move on from Brighton. You do potentially damage that, um, I think. I mean, I'd, they'll probably sell him in the summer, so, you know, boo-hoo. But it's it's a delicate balance. It's a really, really delicate balance. And Caicedo is, you know, I, I'm sure that Arsenal were looking at him two years ago as well because everyone was. Clive? Yeah, Man United were close to him. And I think your point about, the position Brighton holds in the league is almost like the UK version of Dortmund up to a point um, where you sort of go. Shakhtar, yeah, particularly when the Brazilians used to go there pre-war, etc. So, um, but maybe Dortmund are t- almost too big. But you know what I'm talking about, Tim, that step club where you go, where you know you're going to play because you, you bet on yourself, right? So, um, so we've done it a few times with younger players, but it's quite interesting to see how we react to those younger players when they do gain the team. We're, we're quite hard on them. You know, sometimes I am, but we're quite hard on them. We've got a young player that we sort of bet on 
has gone to Crystal Palace. I don't see many people crying over it. It's just a development, you know? It's a development. I saw something today online that I'm not saying that we should be, you know, development comes in many different shapes and sizes. Tuberakpom is now the top scorer in the championship or something like that, or he scored the most goals, quite close to the top scorer in the championship. Tuberakpom playing for us, struggled in and out, and it's and it's clicked for him. And Premiership clubs are looking at him now. And I think he's 26 now, something like that. You know, development comes wow. in different in different times when it when it hits you when you realise you've got to get serious. And I, I, we've got to open our minds up to that. Sometimes I forget and I close my mind off. But I look at what Sambi's done going to Crystal Palace. We we're not giving them a chance. Sometimes we we, we want it all now. And then when Brighton get these gems, we say, "Oh, why can't we get those gems? Well, we want to give them a chance." You know, Brian bought a young player this week called Yassin Ayari from Sweden. Six million, 19-year-old Swedish midfielder. I haven't heard of him before. I wonder if we'll be talking about him in two years' time. You know, and yeah. and, that's, and that's how it goes, Making right? Making a 90-million so, bid. Yeah, exactly. When they bought me Toma, I wasn't thinking they got a great player here. When I swam at the World Cup, I went, aye, aye, what's going on here? You know, and um, and now we've got we got the player that he just pushed out the team in, into our team. That's not totally fair because they're both playing at the same time. But you know what I mean? They're not crying over it because they've got another player cooking in the background. It's a challenging one. It really is. But Brighton are doing what they do. They're doing it very, very well. Back to where we started. We need to do what we do. And I am so pleased that we have taken the chance to grasp the opportunity that's in front of us by dropping in a couple of men into our team and fixing the, the left foot and a half thing in the back door as well. We were, young, we were a young star. I'm so pleased we've respected the opportunity. I'm not turned away from it for a longer-term project. We said, no, let's take this now if we can. If we, if we don't make it, at least we tried. You know what I mean? And we can reset again in the summer. So I'm really pleased with that approach. This Kivyar chap... Uh, caviar, I will be calling him. Uh, <laughs> seems to be breaking a few records. I don't know if you saw that. Uh, yeah, for something like yard. jumping and was the it short like, sprint? Short uh, sprint. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Standing jump and one other jumping thing. So the guy, the guy's an athlete. Should be fun to yeah. see. I, I wouldn't mind betting that like Gabrielle would have been up there for some of those records as well. You know, like short sprint jumping. Like it. Yeah. It sounds like pretty good analog for him but we're not going to talk uh Jakob Kivior Paul we are going to talk about um someone who is our player as well has been for a much mm. longer time uh Balogun who is currently the top scorer in Ligue 1 now you know talking about development at different times Balogun's going to be 22 in the summer which which seems older than maybe some of us consider him to be and I, I do think that his development has been stunted a little bit by contract shenanigans like there was a year he should have gone on loan but his contract was running down so we kept him here and we kept him the first half of last season when I don't think we should have like I think he should have played more football um, but it all got sidetracked by the whole contract thing but nevertheless he's doing really really well on loan at a rare um, I'm sure you'll be able to pronounce that better than me. Um, you know, up there, like his name is is in quite good company at the top of Liga. Um, what about Balogun, Paul? Is is there a world in your mind where Gabriel Jesus, Eddie Nketiah and following Balogun can all live happily ever after in Arsenal shirts? 
or are we going to have to i mean we're not going to sell gabriel jesus is is this like a you know um celebrity death match between Enketia and Balogun how do you see this situation playing out or is this a you know what we can get cash money for him in the summer let's take it and and go um so there is a world in which that can happen it's probably a world in which we learn to play Eddie Enketia and Gabriel Jesus in the same team more often we talked about it a lot last summer we were all very very excited about that but that's not what happened it was either Gabriel Jesus and then Eddie comes on for 10 minutes at the end and Eddie plays the cups Eddie plays some Europa League but if it were Champions League um you know Arteta he's living for us to become a proper European club and to go deep in the champion like he's not going to look on that as a any kind of competition to sure to rotate and to change but not to put out a kind of a shadow side or a a uh, almost a b team at any point for for some group games so th- we'll have a lot of big games next year assuming well look we know we're going to be in the champions league so we're going to have a lot of big games next year there's going to be a lot of games for eddie and for uh, jesus but also we need to find ways they can play some number of games together jesus off the wing two strikers some some variations something else that mixes up a bit because otherwise i do think there's an uncomfortable uh, issue with having Balogun and Eddie one after the other, uh, very analogous in terms of their, yeah, uh, in terms of career and circumstancing and just unavoidable comparisons. Like it's just it's too much. Two academy kids uh, were like it'll never end. I mean, it is or you can already kind of feel it's a thing with Balogun hidden away in France that it's like every time Balogun scoring and say Eddie was having a tough time at the moment, which he isn't really, but if he were the whole narrative would be, you know, Balogun scores three. Most of the people who see that don't even see the goals or they see a highlight of one or a, a 30 second clip. And it's like Balogun's been brilliant. Is he? I don't I don't know who's watched him. A few people I'm sure have watched him almost I would say 99% of the people who have a strong view of Balogun haven't seen the games. When I looked a little bit deeper into the game, like I think Balogun's a really good player and loads of potential. So this is not a knock on Balogun, but it at all it, it's about to sound like a knock on Balogun. <laughs> I I can just hear the tone of where it's going. But like Almost every goal I've seen him score, while he may have done something really good, the defense is so soft. The marking, the goalkeeping, um, and like it's not a knock on Balogun. He's he's a very good player, but this is his first time out. So where am I going with all of this? Here's what I think we should do with Balogun. A year and a half in France. He's or so it'll be two year. I guess two years if he took one more year. He's had six months there now. Give him the full season, give him one more season, kind of like we did with Saliba. And maybe there's some parallels with the whole Saliba narrative about when he comes back and how would he be against this guy and that guy. I don't see what the cost to giving Balogun one more year would be. Um, And letting him mature uh, maybe in a, you know, Saliba stepped up in teams. He moved to Marseille, which was a bigger Mm -hmm. deal. They, They had tougher games. Other teams took them more more seriously than teams take Reims, 
And so maybe um, Premier League, you know. The only problem with it, you're right. I mean, that would be a great step up for him. The only problem is, comparison-wise, he's in the league with, like, if you're avoiding the Eddie debate and and that being the whole narrative around Balogun, I mean, it's just nice for Balogun to have a couple of years of, of honing his craft if it's working for him in France, like Saliba did. I know Saliba's French. Um, I kind of think that's optimal. And in another year's time, we'll know where we are with Eddie, Eddie will know where he is with us and a decision will have been made there. And then any kind of overlap and uh, duplication goes away. You make a decision on Eddie, you make a decision on Balogun. Now, if we need a third striker next season, I guess you might say we do. Um, It's certainly a very simple solution to bring in Balogun, but maybe you want a different kind of option. Yeah, I... My my issue with that is just like I think like players under twenty five like need to play, and yeah. I think if Balogun comes back and he's our third choice striker, there's a chance he falls into the Sambi vortex of playing infrequently and and not. But but then again, in Ketia, um, he he has may, maybe later than he would have, but he has managed to develop in in that kind of uh, in that context um as well clive what do you reckon on balogun how do you see <coughs> this one shaping up uh well I, the player i've always liked the player for most of you um i like his technique he's got everything technically he's beautiful you know he's got soft feet if you look at his goals they are um they are quality and something i learned from arteta actually about finishing it teaches you to, to hit the ball downwards, right? So there's videos about finishing drills of Arteta out there. And, and you see his, his second goal yesterday when he volleyed it downwards. I thought, well, there you go, son. There you go, on target. Left foot, right foot, first time finishes. That sort of thing transmi- transmits and translates to other leagues. If you're having five touches, beating yourself, doing the step over, no one's been, you can't see anybody else on the screen. You've got to say, well, actually, the defence is not quite at it. When you're running past PSG through their back line in the last minute, going around the goalkeeper, PSG last time I looked are quite good. Go around the goalkeeper with people running back like Marquinhos trying to chase you down. You're separating away from them and slotting it. That sort of thing makes me sit up and say, okay, what have we got here? Right. So the agent issue, the same agent him and Eddie, isn't it? Again, we don't know what's going on in the background, what the pathway is. I guarantee when he sits down with the club, he knows the pathway of both players. He absolutely does. Eddie was third centre-forward last season. He was second centre-forward this year. That's why he signed. There may become a time when he says, when he's proven himself, he says, I no longer want to be a second centre-forward. I want to be a first centre-forward somewhere else. And I will go, and Balogun comes in and says, I'll be the second centre-forward because where I am in my age curve and where I am in my development, I'm okay with a second centre-forward. I can take that. And so it's, it's all about your pathway, which is secret to us, really. I like the player. I've got to be honest with you, I like him. He fits my eye massively. I watched him play for the academy out wide. I thought, oh, that's good. Much like Eddie when he played out wide. I didn't dismiss it. Neither all ran ability in wide areas. He's far better wide player, if you see what I mean, than Eddie is. He's just happier out there. And he can create creative passes from out there. He turns into a 10 when he's out wide left in particular. Inside the box, I think Eddie's really, really sharp. 
I think what worried me about Balogun when he went to Middlesbrough, I didn't see the separation away from men. And I was a bit worried, I've got to be honest with you, because I had high hopes and I thought, oh no, maybe it's not gonna it's not gonna happen. When you go to France, they've got some big athletes there and he's separating away from them. I thought, okay, you're developing. On the emotional side of things, if you ever listen to him, I said I said this before, I got deja vu. If you ever listen to him, he sounds a lot younger than he looks. He sounds really nice and young, with quite a high-pitched voice, really emotionally maybe behind what his body looks like. His body's like ripped, ready to go. But And I think Arteta said the same thing to him when he said to Smith Ropal around, I'm not going to watch your games. I want you to develop your character. There's two sides to this that builds the house, right? You know, And the emotional mentality side is what he's now focused on. When you watch him, he doesn't look like a shy dude anymore. He looks like he's having it with them. He's taking them on. He's leading the team. He's knows, taking on responsibility of scoring goals. He's he's really doing it. You know, leading a man's team, leading them, being the guy they're all relying on. That's a massive thing, that is. A massive thing for your mentality and, and confidence. So uh, the best thing that's happening is these guys are all playing. Sambi will now play. It's important that they play so we can then judge them. When they don't play and they come in every now and again and we judge them, I think it's really unfair. I do it. It's really unfair. Judge them when they play and then we can see how they can develop into the squad. But it's interesting to see what that agent's got pathway-wise to him because he knows a story that we don't know. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and Inketi himself said that, didn't he, around about this time last year when he was talking on that podcast and he was like, look, if you give me games and I don't score, fine, but I need the games first. And, you know, to be fair, he's delivered on that. Um, we're we're going to, well, Elliot's going to get the Chelsea view on Jorginho um, after this. So we're not going to talk too much Jorginho. Probably should have said that at the beginning of the podcast, but... Um, I do think we have to discuss him maybe more widely in the context of Saturday's game, away at Everton, 12.30, Sean Dyche's first game in charge. None of those things sound (laughs) really nice to me, Um, albeit Arsenal have a really good record against Sean Dyche, but it still somehow feels like a throwback to the Allardyce kind of days. And Paul, we're recording this on Thursday, training photos and videos released, to be fair, we don't know for sure those photos are from Thursday, um, but Thomas Partey's not in them. So I think we have to entertain at least the idea that he might not be able to play in this game and therefore Jorginho presumably will. How are you feeling overall about uh, a Saturday lunchtime at Sean Dyche's Everton? Well, there might be a lot of kicking going on. I guess I'm okay with the idea of Jorginho uh, if he has to start in that game in that we should have plenty of possession. And uh, if there's one thing that Jorginho suits, it's keeping possession, continuity, uh, tempo, moving the ball around, stopping it getting stagnant. Uh, he may not look very exciting, but the play around him should be because it's very much the Arteta mold going back in the day as a DM. Like he used to get a lot of criticism for side to side passing, but it's not the it's not his pass that matters. It's who he's passed to and when and how and whether he made the switch to the other side and just mo- moving the opponent from side to side. And I think Everton could be quite deep, quite sat in, and it's 
almost a perfect Jorginho game, and we should be well set in him, in and around him, to make sure that he's covered on transitions. Zinchenko, White, uh, tucked in either side of him, depending. Uh, Gabriel and Saliba, well positioned, a little closer to him than they might be to Saliba, to make sure that there aren't those gaps. Uh, he won't have got any faster, but he probably hasn't got any slower. Um, and he is the definition of the player that that uh, an Arteta wants as a DM in a possession side, a deep-line playmaker. He's also very clever at the little clip over the top or the pass before the pass or, or the no-look pass. I think he'll bring a little bit of sizzle. He'll mostly bring tempo, and that'll suit this game. Um, and But maybe, you know, Arteta likes to... Su- likes to uh, have the opposing manager a little uneasy about what's going on. So maybe that's what Thomas Partey not being in the pictures is about. I mean, he's a plausible excuse that Partey mightn't play with the ribs. Or maybe the photographer was very, very unlucky that all of his photos, Thomas Partey just happened to be out of the, the view on that. Yeah, and and this is the advantage, like the very, very immediate advantage of of buying Jorginho, right? You can slip him into Everton away, a Sean Dyche team. He's done that. He's played at Burnley. He's played at Goodison Park. He knows what that's all about. So, um, you know, it it won't be like a baptism of fire for him. But Clive, speaking of training pictures and training videos, I don't know if you've seen anything Everton have put out this week, but, you know, they're really nailing it to the cathedral door. They're doing bleep tests there's a brilliant picture of an Everton player like in the foreground of the photo like on his haunches and like Dyche in the background laughing his head off (laughs) he's putting them through their paces he's obviously decided that their fitness and their physicality isn't enough and blah 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 I mean the other thing about Everton though they got a new coach in they didn't get any new players in they sold Anthony Gordon I think a lot of people expected them to reinvest that money. They didn't, so they don't have any new players. In fact, they tried to get Andre Ayew um, because he's a free agent, um, but Nottingham Forest are addicted to transfers, and so they were, you know, like <laughs> they just rolled up smacking their lips, going, Wait, you guys are doing a transfer? We won in on that shit. So they got him instead. So they've got a new coach. They haven't got. Any new players, though, or a better squad? How are you feeling about Everton away on Saturday? Yeah, players players smell success. And Zinchenko said, you know, I could smell that Arsenal improving. You know, I want you to go there. Players smell when things go in the right direction. They also smell when things go in the wrong direction. And there was about 15 players I was in for, and suddenly people weren't answering their phones at the critical moment, right? So cause they don't want to join the club and then go down. And they're worried. They don't trust the club. Don't trust how it's run. Don't trust the structure. Don't trust the recruitment. Don't trust the board. Don't trust Farhad Bashiri. What's happened with Usmanov there has completely kicked their legs away financially. So they're a club in disarray. So Sean Dyke's body walked in and said, what do you mean you don't play 4-4-2? What's wrong with you? Let's start running. Right? So he's got everybody running. And he has got his perfect set of forward in Cavaloon, if he can keep him fit. He'll probably break him in training. But And I do see, joking aside, I think he is a good fit for Everton. They're a, you know, a hard-working club. If you think about what Moyes did, that's their best period I can remember in recent years, apart from 
for Howard Kendall times, which is probably way before some of these of our listeners. But Howard Kendall was the man back in the eighties, and Everton were the best team in England. And 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 Moyes is the only one that's brought many sort of identity since then. So Dice is close to a Moyes, and I think yeah. I think he'll fit the club over a period of time if he gets the right sort of backing. In the short term, they've got Arsenal first, Liverpool next. If I'm Dice, I'm thinking, you know what? No one's going to expect anything from me, so I'm going to start working this group now. I'm going to start working and get my get my work into them. No one's going to kill me for these two in a trot, but then after the season starts, you know, and um, I think that'd be really important for him. As for Jorginho Factor, let's see what happens. Um, if he does play, I said the other day on the Patreon podcast, one thing we do have that Chelsea don't have, we have the best three strikers for as defenders in the league. You know, they work really, really hard to they affect the entry pass into our back line. And that means Jorginho's not having people running at him without any pressure on the ball. And that'll make it so easy for him just to play. I just checked his last game and he had like 90 or touches at 92% pass accuracy. This isn't going to be hard for him, right? It's just get up, go to work just put your shin pads on and start passing the ball about. That's what happens when you're 31 and you've won what he's won. This isn't difficult. It's just about learning your teammates' names and playing in the number six position in the middle of the wagon wheel and moving that ball around. And we've got a structure with good, strong athletes that don't mind the football around him and can take some of the ball progression off of him. You know, and, you know at Chelsea, they haven't quite got that. Their backline defenders... They're not that great on the ball. Koulibaly's not that great. Um, so I, I'm i not... I think he's in a better position for him at, at this stage of his life. Yeah. You know, and uh, I know he's got Zinchenko, he's got Saliba, he's got Gabriel, he's, he's got, got Ben White. He's Thiago Silva. Yeah, you he's, said Koulibaly. Exactly. This is a great, great thing for him. You know, um, great role for him at this stage of his career. So he's just got to make it work. You know, and um, so yeah, I'm... Obviously, I'm worried, Tim, because I'll find any reason to worry because it's a game. We haven't played for a little while, it feels like. It's Saturday morning. I don't like that. And uh, even though we're quite good in the mornings. But basically, new manager, you're never sure what you're going to get. And um, last year, we went to Everton, didn't we? They haven't won in, in three years and then they end up scoring two goals in the last 10 minutes and beating us. You know, And so, yeah. all mine get this one out of the way. If we do, it would be really positive for the um, the real big ones coming up in the weeks weeks after. Yeah, yeah. I, I think the thing is, you make a good point about like Dominic Calvert-Lewin probably being Sean Dyche's ideal striker. I think even if you gave Sean Dyche £500 million, he'd look at the fact they have James Tarkovsky and Connor Cody. And those are probably the defenders he'd buy with that money if they didn't already have them, quite frankly. So, like, you know, they're, they're going to slot in to what he wants, in fact. They're going to love it because they're just going to be told to defend the penalty area and they're both really good at that. Um, so I, I think you're quite right. I, I think I think Everton should have done Dyche quite a while ago. Um, to be honest, I, I do think it, ever since the money kind of went south, and you look at the what what's the job that Dyche did at Burnley, he worked with a group with bugger all money, and he just said, okay, we're going to work hard. That's who we are. I remember listening to him on a podcast, and he said stuff like, like at Burnley, he really lent into the we're little old Burnley thing. So, like, they used to get, you know, like they never ever flew like to an away game or anything like that, which 
by Premier League standards is an incredibly humble thing to do. But like, you know, he but he he wouldn't like book them their own carriage on the train. Like they'd travel with the public, and you know he'd get them to say their you know mind their p's and q's and say their please and thank yous and all of that. Like so he wasn't doing that thing where he spent sent along specialist mattresses that had been molded to and the right pillows. Remember all, <laughs> that was a whole thing where they send on a specialist the day before to set up the bedrooms for the players. Like, like at Burnley like almost to the point of it being a shtick it was the anti that like we're Burnley we do things differently we play differently everyone hates us yeah 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 we you know we we get on the train with the public like he really played into that and and I think that would go down well at Everton as well particularly the position they're in maybe a couple of years ago it wouldn't have when they were wasting all this money but like now they're in a, a much more humble position i I think it's a good fit, personally, Clive. I think that fits really nicely. Everton are the people's club, aren't they? That's their, that's their thing. And he is driven that way. I, I, it feels like a fit to me. I don't want to praise him too much, right? I want, to just, I want him to lose badly at the weekend, but it feels like a fit. And, you know, it's, when you see a fit, you, you almost, I don't want to see Everton go down, right? They, they, but he feels like a fit, and I think he'll do well there. I hope so. Yeah. And on that note, um, let's end this part of the podcast. Like I said, uh, Elliot is going to get the Chelsea view on Jorginho. Um, We'll probably have some messages from our sponsors uh, after this. But before we do that, let's say goodbye to Clive, who you can follow on Twitter at ClivePAFC. Thank you, Clive. Thank you very much. And Paul, who you can follow on Twitter, you can follow if you want on Twitter and send him DMs about how much you hate me, um, at Poznan in my pants. Paul, thank you very much. Woohoo! We'll be back. Well, Elliot will be right back after this. Let's tell you that this podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. I feel good about this sponsorship, I think. I mean, it's a company that tries to make health, uh, mental health accessible. Like that's just a good thing to want to do in the world. There's no such thing as perfect company, a perfect approach to anything. But for me, mental health is something that we need to just normalize as a part of health, not a special segment of it. In the same way we think of eating right, in the same way we think of exercise, in the same way we think of going to our doctor, we should we should use mental health for maintenance, not just for crisis. Because sometimes using it for maintenance avoids crisis. So let me tell you some specific things about better help that I think um, make it worth looking into. There's no, you know, it reduces the friction of trying to get into mental health, right? I got to find someone. How do I find them? Then I, you know, is there office nearby? Am I going to hop in the car and drive there once a week and take the time to do that? Am I, you know, is it going to be affordable? Am I going to click with that person? What if I don't feel comfortable being in that room with that person? I want to be a little more anonymous. You can get rid of all of that, right? You can get matched with someone in hours. You can um, find someone that fits your needs. You can find someone that fits the specialty area that you need. These are licensed therapists, Right. Um, you fill out a brief questionnaire, you can go camera on, you can go camera off. So it's easy access to a thing that's going to make you a healthier, happier person. If you are struggling, then I definitely think therapy is essential. If you're not struggling, but you just feel stuck or you you feel like you could just improve, you know, you may be in great shape. Doesn't mean you stop going to the gym. You might feel mentally healthy and think, you know what? 
I want to work with a therapist. Cause frankly, like, you know, I've been married a long time. Your partner's not your therapist. That's not to say, don't talk to them about what's going on, but this is professional work. It should be done by a professional. So if you want to live a more empowered life, therapy can get you there. Visit betterhelp.com slash vision today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com, betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash vision. Do it now. Okay. Now it's my great pleasure to be joined by Dan Dormer, who, although he is a Chelsea fan, is actually a good human being. So let's get that out of the way first. Uh, he is part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network family, or at least his podcast is. London is Blue is a great Chelsea podcast to the extent that such a thing can exist. Uh, and he's been gracious, gracious enough to come on the pod despite suffering the despair of losing a critical component to their chase for Europa Conference League competition. So you can find Dan's podcast, uh, should you choose to do that, as at London Blue Pod. Dan, uh, all kidding aside, pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, it's good to be back. And look, you know, if we have to add another European trophy across another competition to complete the set to go along with the Champions League trophies, Europa League trophies, we're totally okay with that. If that is our lot in life this season, we will just go ahead and do that. And uh, obviously, congratulations to you and yours for the continued success that you're finding this season as much as that pains me to say out loud because, (laughs) uh, you know, game has to recognize game and that's where we are. That's right. And I want to let you know that I, too, am uh, would be happy to watch Chelsea continue to win Europa Conference League trophies. So uh, we are aligned in our in our goals and aspirations there. Um, all kidding aside, I, I just want to know, ordinarily, I feel like you'd be puffing out your chest because you signed Mudrick, you signed Enzo Fernandez, you got a couple of bright young players, you, you're firing the money cannons in all directions, but then the gut punch, the sucker punch of losing really the heart and soul and massive talent of your of your squad right on deadline day has to drag you right down. Um, what's been the reaction in the ether? Forget, forget the impact on the pitch firstly, forget the talent level. Just what's the reaction to losing a player that I, I have to assume you have a great deal of affection for in Jorginho? Look, I was there when Chelsea won the Champions League. It was super incredible. <laughs> Don't remember. He was a, <laughs> Does ring a bell. He, Sorry, what? He was a key what? cog. He was a key cog in that midfield during that campaign alongside uh, the two individuals of Ingolo and Conte. And so, yeah, I mean, it's hard not to feel anything other than an affection for him as a player, even though maybe his role has evolved a little bit. His performances have changed from maybe his peak to where he is now. And the reality is Chelsea was going to be saying goodbye to him most likely at the end of the season for zero dollars and so if you could say hey we're reinvesting this money into essentially the book value for Enzo Fernandez for the first year just in terms of wages by moving Jorginho off that feels like a really good deal for me in terms of what can happen is obviously some of the why do you reinforce a rival? I don't necessarily know if we're in the same category of rival this season all things considered (laughs) um Mm. Again, uh, very grounded Chelsea supporter, not necessarily one who is going to buff, uh, puff their chest out. But I think this feels like a good move for Jorginho. Gets to stay in London. It's good for him. Uh, it's a good move for Chelsea. They get money for a player who is going to be leaving anyway. And most likely with Fernandez coming in and some of the talent we do have, wasn't going to necessarily be the starter the rest of the way through this campaign. And so... Graham Potter has a massive group of individuals to manage right now and manage happiness and minutes. And that was not going to be an extreme availability. So for Jorginho to go someplace else to Chelsea to make some money and reinvest that. Yes, it's unfortunate because I I do think he was a good contributor. I mean, he's one of the most recent, you know, Ballon d'Or finalists that Chelsea have had as uh, a member of (laughs) their squad. That's Which wild. is crazy, right? When you go back and like, wait a minute, this guy finished third in voting. Um, yes, that did happen. Um, 
It's, it's just a really interesting place to be with him. So yeah, I think in general, uh, Arsenal getting a good guy. I mean, the question is what the on-pitch performance is going to look like, but I, I do think you guys have a great coach in Arteta who's going to be able to figure out a way to maximize his skills and maybe mitigate against some of the deficiency areas in his game. It is interesting. He's he's started uh, 15 games for you, made 18 appearances. So it's not like you'd move completely past him. Um, I want to get into the fact that he's played, his role has evolved at Chelsea. You know, he's he's had, I think, sort of a lone central midfield role at times. He's had the double pivot with Conte, as you mentioned. What's his most recent iteration of his role looked like? And how would you evaluate his performance so far this season? I would say his see his most recent couple of performances prior to departing have actually been really good. He's actually stitched together a couple of back-to-back performances that were hmm. better than the start of the season. And yeah, I think it's hard to grade individually a lot of players within this Chelsea side this season due to the off-pitch type of elements within replacing a coach within the transition, the takeover and, and the amount of injuries this side has amassed where a lot of players are Mm. getting asked to do more or to be available for back-to-back games. And we have witnessed Chelsea fall out of competitions and not look competitive and really get beat up on by sides that should be capable of beating up. I know I'm, I'm feeding, (laughs) I'm feeding the beast, but ultimately Where he has been best is when he has one to two other midfielders, whether it's a midfield three or midfield uh, two, where the other individual is really the destroyer and is going to go box to box to allow him to try to be the metronome to dictate play, to move things around, to recycle, to work with the primary center back or center backs to advance the ball forward. He has, isn't as ambitious with the forward ball. And so I, I think maybe my question is like, oh, hey, you know, how's it going to work with some of the great speed on the wings that Arsenal has in terms of the attack and how fluid it is? But if you're talking about we want to maintain more possession, we want to, you know, make our each of our attacks count, he is someone who helped recycle the ball, make sure that it is readily available to attack again and attack again and attack again. And with the way Arsenal have been more clinical in that nature this year, I would say that that does seem to combine very well, at least as a thought exercise. I think the, oh, by the way, speaking of just sort of funny um, aspects of this deadline day move materializing, did you see the video with Kukurea? I so, did, yes, where uh, he realized being late into it. <laughs> <laughs> they were like, who's the smartest football you play with on your team? And he's like, Jorginho. And they're like, no, someone on your team. He's like, Jorginho. And they're like, he's leaving for Arsenal. He's like, no, he's not. Yes, he is. Well, it hasn't happened yet. He's been pictured in an Arsenal shirt. Kukurea's face just goes deadpan. He's like, no, really? <laughs> so I thought, I thought that was kind of a funny moment. But it, I, I'm sure his, his, his football intelligence is high. What I think Arsenal fans will worry about is that his uh, football athleticism is low. Um, yeah. Thomas Party not known as a sprinter necessarily, although he did turn on the Jets to catch Anthony uh, in the United game, which was pretty impressive. But he, he definitely um, has those long strides. He can, he can cover a lot of ground. He's athletic in, in his way. Is the stereotype of Jorginho as not, of not having that athleticism right? Is it more about the way he plays the role? Like, would you have to put him on someone's shoulders to get him from box to box? What, what is the degree of, of uh, restriction to his athleticism at this point? Yeah, that's a very fair question. So if we remember back to post-Euros where he kind of had that 
just continued hip issue that he played mm. through a little bit. And after that, it really felt like there was a bit of a changing within just how mobile he was. And look, every person who plays football at this level is way more th- athletic than the two people talking about this. So I feel like that yeah, has to know, be the, the caveat here. Yeah. Just, <laughs> just, just slightly, but just a hair hair for you, uh, you know, a, a full mile. I fell me. at the mailbox um, today and can barely get around my house. Right now, so I don't know what you're talking about, but okay. Go <laughs> the athleticism is not great relative to others. And so if you're asking him to cover a lot of distance, and putting him in positions where he is the sole individual, you are potentially going to find yourself in a situation where he is the individual who's going to take one for the team and, and pick up a card. Right? And right, it's mm. actually been not as bad this uh, these past kind of two seasons within the league. I mean, it was uh, five uh, five last season uh, in total, four this season in total so far, which is not completed. So actually, the trend line is going in the wrong direction for him. I mean, when he first uh, his his first two seasons, it was eight and ten. So he has a mm. bit of a habit for getting bypassed occasionally. And one of the things that he will do is he will make the challenge sometimes to foul sometimes it's a card to make up for the fact that he's maybe just a half step behind occasionally feels like how Shaka plays the six frankly like I mean I think that there's a, an analog there but um well how about this so one thing about Arsenal this season it may not be the case in the two Manchester City games but setting those aside we're probably going to have most of the territory in most of the games we play we're way up the pitch. You know, Gabriel, our center back, is carrying the ball into the box. He's playing on the edge of the of the final third. We know Jorginho statistically is very intercepty, that he does like to try to get there before the ball arrives so he doesn't have to run after the ball has already arrived. Do you think that playing further up the pitch in those compressed spaces might allow him to maybe emphasize some of the skill he has on the ball and and with his interceptions and reading of the game versus the big space six who has to go box to box between the lines because we're not we're not doing that as much certainly in the games where he might rotate in which with all due respect to him are going to be the smaller games right are going to be the games against teams that are going to bunker probably a little deeper could you see that role favoring him or is there something i'm maybe not thinking about there that'd be a challenge no, that makes sense to me in terms of where I would look to deploy him. I think the risk that you have to take into account for then is the fact that if he is one of the furthest forward, you know, because he's effectively at times with the way that Chelsea's played a back three or a back five, where your fullbacks are pushed so far up and you maybe have one defender who's pushed forward too. There have been times where he's been partnered with the basically dropped into a center back role with how far up people have pushed. And so he might be one of the last two people on the line and the goalkeeper is then the next furthest back person on the pitch. And so the risk of the counterattack potentially being exposed in that scenario, if the ball is miscontrolled or if it's knocked out in a weird way, that that's probably where there is a little bit of risk with that. But with the general pace that I have seen from this Arsenal side this season, I think that, there's enough players in this team that you have who can take care of that and cover up for that. And that's really where his game is today. It's about understanding the realities of it and what he can and can't do. And if you put him in a situation, just like anybody, where he does not have to be the primary individual, the last individual to kind of track somebody down or forced to run up and down the pitch for the majority of the game, I actually think you're going to get the maximum value out of Jorginho. Can he counterpress though? I mean, does he have at least enough athleticism or reading of the game? Because 
our counterpressing isn't running around with your hair on fire. It's standing in, you know, the shadow, right? It's it's being between the man and, and the passing lanes. But when we lose the ball and we counterpress, it's obviously really important that we close down quickly and get the ball back because we're playing a high wire act at the back. So do you think he can he can play the counterpressing system? I mean, because Tuchel so. did some of that, didn't he? Yeah, so he can play it. I think the the risk is there are times when he kind of goes in shoulder to shoulder to disrupt and win the ball back. And there are times where he does really well with it. And there's t- like I would say it's a 50-50 gamble for him on how mm. good that is going to go for him at this point. Sometimes it goes really, really well, and it looks exceptional. And sometimes it happens, and then you're just watching the other guy fly down the pitch with the ball. And you're just wondering like why the challenge was attempted in the first place. Why didn't you just close off the passing lane instead? And that's maybe where... I don't necessarily know if 100% of his performance is aligned with what he is actually 100% capable of doing on the pitch in his kind of evolved journey as a footballer. It's interesting because one of the sort of seminal party games for me at Arsenal where he went from being just a good player who didn't play enough, frankly, to an elite player who has elevated himself to one of the best central midfielders in the league – was actually last January at home against Manchester City. And we wound up losing that game, but it was one that we, I think, had taken away from us a little bit with a couple of refereeing decisions, a red card for Gabrielle and, and, and a penalty on Chaka. But, like, they were throwing two- and three-minute party and just inside a phone box, shifting the ball between his feet, getting past them. And press resistance is so, so important for us. We've seen when Shaka played the six, he would be targeted for his lack of mobility and, and and lack of press resistance. And we all love Shaka right now with the role he's playing, but those were some dark days for us. I He's not going to sprint away from anybody, Jorginho. I don't see him being a carrier, a progressive carrier of the ball, where he's going to get out of space that way. Does he move the ball quickly enough? Does he have quick enough feet in tight spaces to not be targeted for, for pressing? Um, because I, I'll tell you what I'm not as worried about. I'm not as worried about him not getting to the man and being in sprints. Our structure is so good that anybody where we rarely have anybody having to sprint to recover ground. It happens, but it's rare. But if we get caught on the ball in a bad spot with the way we set up, it's very easy to turn transitions into dangerous attacks for us. And that's what he can't do. So how, how often does he get targeted for pressing and how's he handle it? Heavily. He gets heavily targeted for pressing. And I think it's Super. because Super. of the fact that, <laughs> Sorry, I'm just trying to be as honest as possible no, about I, I, where he's game is today. Yeah. <laughs> and he does get targeted for it. I think he is good at moving the ball to get away from it. I think the challenge is going to be is is frequently recycling it side to side or back, and that can be a little frustrating. I'm gonna, no, I'm not. I'm not going to tolerate no, that. No. Don't tell me that. I do not want the horseshoe I, I, of death. I do not want sterile domination. Please. That, that that is that is what he does. He is about Ugh. ball retention. He's about ball safety. He's trying to mm. make sure that the team can keep the ball. You're going to see him pointing a lot where he wants the ball to go because he is used to being the director or the head of the orchestra mm. when he's conducting the field around him, he is absolutely pointing like where he wants the other person to pass the ball to. And so a two nil up, I'll take it, but we're not, we're not doing sure. that in the 15th minute. Come on. Now. Yeah. Uh, he, he will. I mean, if, if you guys are going to have 60 to 70% possession, um, the most infuriating parts of like the sorry experiment or uh, watching Jorginho and some of the, the really like dead rubber games that Chelsea have played over the last couple of seasons where we really, you know, we've flown high at times and there's also been times where we just have played down to the level of competition. Mm-hmm. There've been some times where you're just like, why, 
why aren't you tempting the forward ball? Why aren't you tempting a ball over the top? Why aren't you being oh. a little bit more interesting or creative with your passes? And I think that's where if you're expecting him to have a ton of really exceptional or really different or really unique forward passes, that's probably setting yourself up for a little bit of disappointment. That that's that's a and by the way, I should have known this because one of your podcast mates, I don't I don't think it was you, but one of you guys had a, a Twitter handle for a while that was likes vertical passes from the midfield. Um, yeah, which that was is, Brandon. I think, <laughs> yeah, and I think that that was a play on the back that you weren't getting those things. Um, yeah, there's a lot. Our game has become very vertical, tremendous amount of vert- verticality, a lot of risky balls, breaking lines into, um, you know, into Odegaard between the lines when Jesus was playing. I mean, the way he was being picked out that way. I mean, and Kedia goes a little bit in behind, but like, it's not, it's interesting because Arteta was apparently uh, an advocate for this move. And I won't get into the issue with you on the Arsenal side of it, which is like, is something better than nothing? And does, does it make it stronger? I think we'll handle that. We've handled that and we'll handle that fully. But like, I, I, I don't think it will work for an Arteta system. If there is no urgency to progress the ball, I think, you know, going back to Gabriel and Saliba, instead of trying to, play it to the next man making a move into space is not going to be acceptable. Now, whether he can do that or not, we'll see. So so if I was on Chelsea Twitter, and of course I would never do that, but if I was on Chelsea Twitter during your, your sort of bang average Chelsea game is the biggest complaint I'd see about Jorginho, people being like, it wouldn't kill you to pass the ball forward. Like, is that the thing that most animates the frustration about him or is there something else? Oh, I think there's that. I think there's also a cohort of people that you're inheriting that are more, you know, just like anyone nowadays where there's a modern contingent where they come with a player and they leave with a player. Uh, so we oh, are yeah. handing you people who are coming to the fan base who are Jorginho fans first and football fans We lost second. a lot of those in the Mesut Ozil Wars. We lost a lot of fans who were Ozil <laughs> fans first, for sure. Yeah. Well, so you're about to pick up some new, newly animated individuals who will be very excited Stupid. for Jorginho to get an opportunity and to hope that he does, uh, again... I hope as a player, as someone who's played for Chelsea and has had done really great things for us, that he continues to be, you know, extremely well, uh, do extremely well. But I think when he was criticized, it was not being creative enough or moving the ball forward enough. I think a lot of the criticism also of some of our attackers not making the be- like doing the best or making themselves available. So I think it was like part partly his fault, but partly the fault of others yeah. as well. Chicken and the egg. All right. So then let's let's end on a high note here. What's the thing? about Jorginho other than like he'll be good in the dressing room he understands football he's a nice guy like okay fine like great but what's the thing when he's on his game that we're gonna love about Jorginho what's the thing that when party doesn't want to start or we don't want party to start a Europa League you know semi-final second you know second leg or god forbid even a Premier League game when he's on his game what's the thing about Jorginho that's gonna have us really feeling like maybe this was a savvy move that put us over the edge for what we want to accomplish this season. I think he's got a little bit of character to him, which at times has been fun to watch in the way that he can be a little bit of a wrestling heel, which is always (laughs) fun to have someone who can get a little bit more animated. Again, we know he's got a great record with penalties as well. So I don't think there's a shortage of people Uh, at uh, Arsenal. uh, No, I'm not having that hop run up. They, no, Saka can keep taking penalties. Any, I mean, it's I know fun. he's good at it. I, it uh, gives me the heebie-jeebies. But okay, fine. So he'll take good penalties. Give me, you got to give me more red meat than that. What am I going to really, really like about watching Jorginho play for Arsenal? I, I think he's going to be animated. I think he's going to be a good character. I think seemingly yeah. has a good impact on the dressing room. I know you don't want to hear yeah. that, but that's like the reality of it. And, and I think, look, in terms of keeping the ball and 
being secure and hopefully helping imprint on others, maybe younger players, like, hey, this is where I want you to go. This is what I want you to do next. Like, he definitely has that, like, coach on the field type of mentality that he can espouse onto others and really help them develop too. Like, I mean, developed a really good relationship with like Trev Chalaba as he was coming up the past couple of seasons, you know, from a defensive you know, uh, role playing, you know, like right center back. So like, th- there are things that he's going to bring that are some intangible things that should be well received. There's a Brazilian cohort there. Um, you know, there's Portuguese speakers, there's, there's a community he'll come into at Arsenal that he'll probably feel comfortable being around and they'll look up to him. So that's good. Um, I do think maybe ball retention in and of itself as, as an ends is not ball retention for the sake of ball retention is not a great thing, but if you want to give parties 70 minutes instead of 90 and you have two goal leads or even one goal lead and you want to kill a game off, you need someone who can keep the ball and you'll pass it 91% 70 times in 20 minutes. I would say it's, or would you say it's fair that he can definitely do that, that he can come in and, and keep the ball for you. Yeah, I, I have no question that he can do that for you. Okay, so this is great. Thank you for this. Thank you for this player. I will I will leave you with this one question. When we look back on this deal, will we see it? Where will we see it between Louise, Gallus, William, and Jorginho? Where on where on that hallowed ground, on that 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 fabled list of Arsenal legends, will he land, do you think? <laughs> Oh man. Where is he at, at this um, point in his career versus those players when they came to us? Where where do you think he is by comparison? I don't know. He could be a little Petrocheki in terms of uh, you know, sure. good enough good enough for a little bit, but probably not uh able to give you exactly what you need. But you know, there's still some shades there that you would hope to mm. maximize for a period of time. Good enough. I'll say this. Those players all came in, as scary as it is to say it, having to start for us. Jorginho comes in having to keep the roof from caving in if we're without party for a few weeks. So different expectations, hopefully a successful one. There'll be uh, a lot more to talk about with this as it goes. I obviously wish you nothing but uh, misery and misfortune for the rest of your season, but as an individual and a human being, I wish you nothing but the best. Thank you, Dan. It would ne- never be the, uh, the same episode that we do together if that wasn't the way we ended it. And likewise. <laughs> beautiful well if you do have any interest in things going on with chelsea you won't find a better chelsea podcast in london is blue uh part of our blue wire podcast network dan's on twitter uh well the, the podcast is on twitter at london blue pod okay we love you and we will talk to you after arsenal 10 everton new Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? 
Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.